Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 14, the assault on the port city of Benguela and its airport, which was not going to be easy, as you'll hear. As the South African Task Force Zulu approached the city, they continued mopping up towns as they went. Near Cambado, a group of Portuguese police appeared, who were part of the interim government. They warned Commandant Jan Breitenbach of Battle Group Bravo that there was an MPLA unit in some of the Cambado houses. Part of the group was sent south to secure the approach to the town while the rest entered. Major Tuan Slubbit was driving point in his camouflaged armoured car when a strange event took place. A FAPTA commander rushed out of a building, rifle in hand, and greeted Slubbit like a long-lost brother. He obviously thought Slubbit was a Cuban commander, although the Major was famous for his bright red hair and beard, which is not exactly the look of the typical Cuban. When Slubbit said he was not in charge, the FAPLA commander then rushed to Commandant Jan Breitenbach's armoured car behind and shouted, Camarade, Commandante! Breitenbach quietly relieved him of his AK-47, and the FAPLA officer was taken prisoner. The FAPLA group in the town could be seen emerging then, and moments later, the SADF opened fire when it became apparent they were going to be attacked. Twelve FAPLA troops were gunned down, the rest surrendered. It was now the 3rd of November, 1975, and the South Africans were running out of time. Remember, the political leadership in Pretoria had stipulated that they had to stop all attacks by the 11th of November, as that was the day of the Angolan elections. National party leadership back in Pretoria were trying to convince friends and the Organization of African Unity, or OAU, to support their actions in Southwest Africa. That was a pipe dream, but B.J. Forster, the Prime Minister, had devoted much time and effort to diplomacy in Africa, and he was hoping that the carrot-and-stick approach would buy the South Africans some support in the OAU. They were hoping that their decision not to overrun Angola entirely would be seen in a positive light. Somewhat of an odd hope, even if you're willing to entertain the basic idea. South Africa was already an apartheid pariah nation, and here was Foster, thinking that black African leaders would somehow be swayed by his magnanimity. So, Task Force Zulu continued north towards Benguela, with the clock ticking. A few kilometers from the city, they came across what looked like a training base, which turned out to be the Cuban-controlled Center for Revolutionary Training. A remarkable 30,000 kilograms of ammunition was discovered there, including 14 crates of AK-47 rounds and 75mm mortars, along with Cuban-made sleeping bags and training manuals. Zulu now set its sights on the city, still rolling northwards, while the men chewed on the Romanian pickles and pork rolls from Holland, as well as the tinned Russian and Cuban food, followed up by cigars from Havana, which were also found amongst the material. SAD of head General Constant Fillion had given orders that those who entered the city should be the Angolans fighting with the South Africans, that the SADF itself should avoid entering the city limits. Benguela is one of the oldest cities in Angola, founded in 1617 as Shao Philippe de Benguela, who also gave his name to the main current that flows up the Atlantic coast of southern Africa. The all-important Benguela-Zaire railway line terminated at that port and was used to transport copper and other minerals from Katanga. More than 50,000 people, mainly white Portuguese, lived in the town before 1975, but most of these had fled by October of the same year. Benguela, by all reports, was a beautiful coastal city, and the South Africans prepared for the worst as they approached the outskirts. The FNLA troops operating with them were travelling quickly, and as they drove into town, the companies were ready for deployment at any moment. But the city seemed empty, at least it appeared so. The FAPLA units had apparently withdrawn, 
But there were small companies of men scattered around the city, which would soon make life very difficult for the invading force. At the same time, SADF headquarters in Rindu had no idea that Task Force Zulu had made it all the way to this Atlantic Ocean city already. And Commandant Linford kept trying to radio the news. In his book, As the Crow Flies, he explains how he decided to head up a nearby hill which overlooked both the city and the ocean. He and Corporal Hendrik Budenstein would try to radio Rundu from the higher ground. Perhaps that would make a difference, he thought. So they drove up in one of the Land Rovers. At the top of the hill was an old wood and stone chapel. It reminded Linford of the buildings he had seen in Lisbon suburbs, complete with a wall with blue paving. He looked over the wall and saw there was a sheer cliff down to a road that ran into a village on the outskirts of Benguela. He wrote, From where I perched I could see the entire spectacle that made up much of Benguela, the distinctive Lusitanian red-tiled roofs, some imposing white-painted administrative structures that would have done any African capital proud, the modest harbour, and finally the ocean that stretched away towards South America. He was enjoying both the view and the welcome fresh sea breeze, when suddenly around the bend in the road below him drove a truck full of Fapla soldiers. The commandant opened fire from his perch down onto this vehicle, while his corporal was shouting at him from behind. Hey, commandant, stop that bloody noise. I got HQ on the air, but with that racket, I can't hear what they're saying. Corporal Budenstein obviously had no idea that they were about to be joined by what Commandant Linford called a pretty grim-faced bunch of cutthroats, armed to the teeth. The truck turned and made its escape, Linford's round striking the sides and flying in amongst the Fapla troops. But Budenstein had got the all-important message across to SAHQ in Rundu in southwest Africa. He said, We've been travelling due west since we last made contact, have now reached the coast, the Atlantic, been doing some fighting with some chaps we met here. Over. The reply from HQ in Rundu was drowned out by the sounds of heavy fighting inside the city, artillery and automatic weapons. Budenstein and Linford didn't try and reply, but leapt aboard their 4x4 and drove quickly back down the hill. Fapla units and the Cubans left behind in Benguela were now putting up a heavy fight. Colonel van Yerden, who led Task Force Zulu, had an important decision to make. The South Africans were suffering from poor intelligence gathering and had been told that a ship by the name of Martana was sailing from a nearby town carrying 50 armoured cars and 700 Cubans and they were heading to Benguela. That turned out to be false information. In fact, the MPLA leadership had been in discussion with the Cubans and it was agreed that both Benguela and Lobito, the other port a few miles away to the north, would be difficult to defend. They had decided to concentrate most of the heavy weapons in the capital Luanda, awaiting the South Africans' arrival. But the SADF did not know this and Van Heerden was making decisions virtually blind when it came to the enemy's intentions and their deployment. Now there was stiff defence being shown by Fapla and Benguela, so Van Heerden decided to go ahead with the plan agreed earlier and deploy Alpha Company under Commandant Linford south of the city to take control of the civilian airport. Little did Van Heerden know that he'd sent Alpha straight into one of the heaviest battles of Operation Savannah. As they approached the airport at 3pm on the 4th of November, all hell broke loose. Fapla and Cuban artillery stationed on high ground to the north of the airfield spotted the South Africans and opened fire. The sand soldiers of Alpha Battle Group were pinned down and could not move as the batteries of rockets, artillery and mortars aimed at their position was substantial. The main weapon that the South Africans feared the most was the red-eye missile, which I've mentioned before. They were usually arranged in batteries of up to 40 fired simultaneously, a technique that the Russians had used against the Germans in the Second World War. They are loud and intense, and I've experienced these going off around me. 
They make a high-pitched shriek as they fly overhead, and the concomitant explosion is ear-splittingly loud. Remember, these missiles were 126 mm in size, significant ordinances. These must not be confused with the other famous red eye named later by NATO, American Shoulder-Fired Manned Portable Air Defense System, or MANPADS. I'll explain now why the South Africans came to give the Russian weapons the name Red Eye. Alpha Battle Group were also being attacked by heavy machine gun fire from inside the nearby Kimbo, or Squatter Camp, a shanty town which had grown outside the airport. This was not looking good for the South Africans. It was vital to control the airport as a strategic position. Any reinforcements and material that was urgently needed by the defenders would have arrived there, along with the port that had already fallen. Alpha Battle Group arrived at the airport building and took control of the ground floor. The first floor was being peppered by machine gun fire and mortars, so it was safer downstairs. Commandant Linford surveyed the high ground and the town from this ground floor and realized they were in a tough predicament. He recognized that the machine gun fire was coming from the shantytown. The remnants of Fapla, including those troops he'd fired on from the hill, were now inside that jumble of corrugated iron shelters, and from there they were keeping up an intense fire. Fapla troops tried to storm the airport, but the sand troops with Linford repulsed these attacks, leaving dozens of bodies lying across the African landscape. Fapla resorted to trying to bomb Alpha Battle Group into submission. Commandant Linford took stock of his position. He knew that Fapla was well-armed. They had dozens of RPG-7s and RPG-2s, along with AK-47s. This was Moscow's contribution to the Angolan Bush War, hardware that was being exported across the world to Central America, Asia, and Africa in massive numbers. The Americans were busy at the same time exporting their own weapons to the same regions, along with the French, the British, the East Europeans, and the Chinese. It was a time of violence, folks. Everyone had an automatic weapon and a reason to want to use it. From El Salvador to Afghanistan to the Philippines, the Cold War was exacting its price, and Commandant Linford and his sand troops, along with the immediate enemy Fapla, were beneficiaries of this intractable war. Included in the list of arms facing the SADF at this airport were the 120mm BM-21 Grad Soviet rockets, and Linford recognized when they were being fired by the glowing red eye in the center of the missile, thus christening the feared armament. The challenge for Linford right now was that he had nothing to throw back at Fapla. When Operation Savannah was launched, the SADF was armed essentially with light weapons, and it was the experience of fighting Angolan forces armed with heavy weapons that was to lead to a rapid and successful upgrade of the SA Defense Force. The shock of facing these 120mm rockets, when all the SADF could do was bury their heads behind the nearest wall, was an experience that the soldiers did not want to repeat. The answer to the grad was the Valkyrie, a multiple rocket launcher with 24 tubes and fired 127mm or 5-inch projectiles. That was actually a re-engineered version of the Soviet 122mm. Back in 1975, though, Linford's men had a few World War II-era bazookas which they used to fire back at Fapla, but these were hardly an effective response. After every Fapla volley, the building was threatened. The missiles and shells were peppering the structure. Alpha was in a bad place. The men were lying close to the sheet glass windows of the airport boarding area and risked being cut to pieces by the flying glass, and that meant they needed to move position. It was now an hour of fighting, and the SADF were pinned down. A mortar duel began between the SADF 82mm mortar section and Farplan Cuban 122mm rockets, each moving quickly to avoid being targeted by the other. Commandant Linford decided to try and outflank the Fapla attackers and crawl back to his Land Rover with his corporal following nervously. 
They took off down the runway, heading for a small patch of trees on the far side at full speed. But the Fapla gunners appeared to be waiting for just this manoeuvre and began to focus their mortars and missiles on the Land Rover, or Gary as they are known in the SADF, now zigzagging along the runway. It was only a few moments later that one of these rockets exploded close to the vehicle, the shock knocking both men senseless. Seconds later they regained consciousness and managed to make it to a ditch at the side of the runway, out of direct view of the Fapla artillery. However, this artillery unit was well trained and had seemingly ranged this very position, switching from 122mm rockets to their mortars, which began to creep closer and closer to where they had taken up their new position. But help was at hand because across the runway, Alpha Group's mortar section was now able to target the red eyes after spotting the rising dust every time they were fired. At the same time, Bravo Group's four companies led by two armoured cars swept westwards to outflank the machine gunners hiding in the shantytown. Commandant Linford managed to make his way to the safety with the corporal, their ears buzzing from the close call. The South Africans eventually drove off the Fapla artillery and machine gun nests. At the same time, intermittent fighting in the town saw the SADF inexorably taking control of the port and the suburbs over the next 24 hours. Fapla had lost dozens of men, the South Africans had a few men on the wounded list, but considering the weight of ordinances fired at them, they were almost unscathed. Dawn broke on the 6th of November, and in Benguela, fighting continued. At around 9am, a Dakota supply plane began circling Benguela Airport. Commandant Linford was now trying to deal with the ringing in his ears caused by the near miss, and the aircraft circling wasn't helping the matter. The operations officer standing nearby said he didn't know whose plane that was. None were scheduled. They immediately thought it must be an MPLA plane with supplies for FAPLA, so ordered Alpha Battle Group to open fire on the Dakota with the automatic weapons. The troops let rip with everything they had. Unfortunately, the South Africans were firing at their own supply plane. In what must surely rank as an example of exemplary courage under fire, the pilot lined the plane up to land despite the rounds thudding into his aircraft. Linford then ordered a ceasefire, deciding that if the plane was landing, they could take control of the aircraft intact. The Dakota landed and duly taxed the apron. Only then did the aircrew realize they had landed in the middle of a firefight and Task Force Zulu realized they had almost shot down their own supply aircraft. It was duly unloaded and the pilot gunned the engines and took off once more heading back to the safety of southwest Africa. It was decided then that Battle Group Bravo should clear the shantytown area straddling much of the approach to the airport while Alpha would provide covering fire. After they had ensured the shanty area was clear, Alpha would move forward and sweep the city CBD. Fapla commanders had also decided it was prudent to leave, and within an hour both the shantytown and the city itself had been taken by the SADF, with surviving Fapla and Cuban units withdrawing. The SA Defence Force was now set to continue its drive towards Lobito Bay. Unita companies arrived to take over the city of Benguela, and that night officers and some of the men of Task Force Zulu went into town which was somehow showing signs of life. In an incongruous moment, locals and some of these men sat together at bars and restaurants that night, which miraculously sprang back into action. It was only hours after the battle for the city, and already people were trying to get on with their lives. The next phase of Operation Savannah would see Fox Bat to the east, as well as two other battle groups, X-Ray and Yankee, feature in the drive to secure the south of Angola. We'll hear more about them next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. You can head off to the website abwarpodcast.com or email any comments or messages from there. 
And you can also direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.